Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome to the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we give you your ABCs, adventure books and conversations from 11,000 feet in the beautiful Eastern Sierra. I am your co-host, Christopher, and with me is... Stacy. Hello, everybody. And I think our producer, Doug, is with us. Good morning. It just, it only looked like I was sleeping. (laughs) Usually people try to disguise it. I've come to a point in my life where I just, I have to admit I'm tired. (laughs) Yeah. I think we're all a little tired. (laughs) We all are. And I mean, I, I, um, I gave you a new title. I almost gave you a new title, Professor Doug. Yeah, I know. Where'd that come from? (laughs) Well, you're the man, dude. Okay. You know, can I have a raise? I was going to say, hey. You have to ask your boss. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, raise, right. ask for a raise in tenure, Doug. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Oh, boy, uh, it, it, it is, you know, it is that beautiful time of year. We're starting to see some beautiful fall colors start to pop out. But you are correct, Doug. We, all of us here at the Mono County Office of Education and the Mono Public Libraries, we are all tired. We have all been working so hard lately and we work hard all the time, but it feels like this year it's an exceptionally difficult year. Aye, aye. Here we go. Yeah. And you know, it's worth saying that out loud, you know, we have our good days and our bad days like everyone during this pandemic. And, you know, we had that great uplift as school was starting and things are kind of inching towards some degree of normalcy and, um, but you know, uh, the pandemic is still here. The work is still hard. We're still doing a lot of stuff in person and virtual this year, I think compared right. to last year, which is doubly draining people. Yeah. And, you know, people are just all over the place and it's worth acknowledging that. Yeah, f- for sure. Um, I mean, it's all great work and I will give a shout out to all of our employees and our staff and, just say thank you for all of your hard work and tenacity and patience and good humor, all those <laughs> things that, you know, that keep us coming to work every day. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I will echo that. Um, and just all of our, our friends and neighbors who are doing the same in their parts yeah. around the Eastern Sierra. But, you know, it is worth also saying that, you know, there are those exhale moments. You know, last time we talked about the rainbows after the rains. Um, And, you know, I kind of had a similar uh, exhale moment last week. You know, we're we're recording this again about a week and a half in advance of, of... release. So, you know, fall is just starting and Stacey, you mentioned the colors are beginning to hit, which is so nice, especially when the smoke isn't around. And the smoke has been a little bit clearer this year than it was Mm -hmm. last year, which is nice. And so last week, um, Wills and I took Monday off and went on a very short trail hike just up above the Mammoth Lakes Basin, you know, the Duck Pass Trail, which kind of goes towards Mm -hmm. Duck Pass, but we didn't go all the way. We just went up you know, for like about a two and a half hour walk more than anything. There's a lot of uphill (laughs) in that walk. (laughs) Um, but you know, you see about three, 
good lakes. Arrowhead Lake is a small lake and Skelton mm-hmm. Lake and the Sky Meadows and then down to Emerald Lake on the loop. And what was nice about this was a few things. One, it was smoke-free after a number of days of some pretty dense smoke. Right. So that was just a nice exhale. And it was just to, you know great to be out and moving. But the other thing is that that's a really popular trail in the summer. It's almost elbow to elbow sometimes. Right. And we were out there almost by ourselves. There were a few other locals and you know, we had our little dog and they had their dogs and that was kind of nice. And then there was one educational group. There was a school group going through, which is also kind of cool to see like, yeah, yeah. that's still happening. That outdoor yeah. education stuff that happens all around yeah. us. Um, and boy, was it just a great way to, to start off a morning, you know? So definitely. And we did the same. We just did a small local hike last weekend, just right outside our front door. And, down to Crawley Lake and there's a great six mile loop that we follow. And Mm -hmm. it was, it was so nice to see the gorgeous blue sky and not have anybody around and really be able to breathe and exhale. Like you said, it was was great. And I know our, our kiddos in our um, community schools today are going to Mona Lake Brilliant. They have their first field trip. So the I was teaching in that classroom yesterday and they were all really excited. So <laughs> now do they, they go have down, a nice day? Do they get to do they just go to the educational and interpretive center there, or do they actually get to go down the lake and see the flies? You know, they weren't um I don't know exactly what I know they were heading to the south tufas. Oh, great. So how close and how you know, close to the lake's edge they were getting. I'm not really sure. I'll have to debrief with them next week, but they were just telling me that they were going and, <laughs> would I, you know, did I have any pull? Would I let them go to Monocone? <laughs> <laughs> Which is the real question, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and what was the answer? Well, the answer was, well, you know, yeah, <laughs> I don't have a lot of pull. I, <laughs> I, there for the grace of God, go I, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope they're enjoying it. I'm sure they are. And, you know, we're so blessed to have something like Mono Lake so close to us that, that our students can enjoy time out there and get out into the beautiful sunshine and see something that's truly unique. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears and get into our books, okay? So Mm -hmm. um, we had planned for this episode um, to talk about historical fiction. So One of my favorite genres. Yeah, mine too. I have to say, I really enjoy it. Even when I was a kid, you know, in our last episode, we talked about young adult fiction. And I don't know if it really qualifies, but, you know, when I was growing up, I loved... um, the little house books yeah, and you know, I, I, you could even kind of classify little women under, you know, it's, it's got some historical context to it, but, <laughs> well, um, it was contemporary at the time, but now it's historical, right? Now it's historical. Right. So, yeah. So this was so fun. I actually read two awesome. historical well, fiction books. So tell us about them. I mean, all right. To hear what I will. You read. And well, the first one I read was called The Dollhouse by Fiona Davis. And that's a few years old. Fiona Davis is a pretty popular author. I know yep. she's released some books um, since this one in 2016. 
And as she does typically with her books, she picks two time periods and then goes back and forth between the two. And in this case, the novel is set in the 1950s and modern day New York City at the Barbizon Hotel, what was the Barbizon Hotel for Women. And in the 50s, this was the place where a single young woman could go to New York City and live in this hotel that was only women. And they had kind of a matron who made sure they were in the hotel by a certain hour and that they attended their <laughs> all of their jobs and schools and all of their responsibilities. Um, but it was prime primary primarily women who were models or students at the secretarial school in publishing perhaps it was mm-hmm. very specific who lived there well it's interesting right because that is an actual real phenomenon there were these hotels yep. and cities all across the country because it was an acceptable way as the women's workforce was expanding for right. young women to move to the city and still feel safe and you know live somewhere that was quote unquote acceptable. Right. I think, Correct. That, I think and they um, didn't have to be married. Right. Yeah. Right. They could be on their own. Yeah. So, and I think some famous people have lived in these, like I know Gloria Steinem when she moved yes. to New York lived in one and there's some others out there too, that would probably surprise people. I think one of the people in the, one of the characters in this book was, is kind of like the Gloria Steinem person. Really? Awesome. I kind of, I kind of think that, could be. But in any case, so there is, so as I said, the story flips back and forth. And so the, um, the earlier time period, the 19, like around 1952, this woman named Darby moves to the Barbizon hotel. She's going to go to secretarial school. This is kind of like her mother's ambition for her is to become a secretary and then you know, meet an executive and marry him. And then she's not her mother's problem anymore. Right. Um, (laughs) Darby doesn't really love this idea, but she befriends one of the um, women named Esme who works in the hotel. And Esme is an aspiring singer. And Esme kind of opens Darby's world up to this world of jazz clubs and underground and musicians and all of that that goes with that. New York in the fifties. Yes. And then it flips to present day and a character named Rose lives in the, what, you know, the Barbizon hotels become condos now. For real. real. Yes. For real. And with the exception of the women, that never married and never left from the fifties, they were allowed, they were kind of grandfathered in and they were kind of given their rent controlled apartments because <laughs> they're quite elderly now <laughs> on one floor of the building. Right. And then around it lives all of these, you know, wealthy, fancy people that can afford to live there. And Rose is living there with her boyfriend who is recently separated from his wife. Mm-hmm. But then he gets back together with his wife and summarily kicks Rose out. Mm. So she not having anywhere to go, she ends up kind of squatting in one of the elderly women's 
apartments <laughs> under the premise of taking care of her dog. Oh, wow. And Rose is a writer. She's a journalist. And she kind of stumbles onto the story of these women and all of their backstories. And there was a little scandal that went on. Oh, and really? she kind of becomes obsessed with the scandal that involved Darby and Esme back in the 50s. And so that you see what really happens and then what how Rose is kind of investigating this. Oh, and wow. It was, it was really, it really kept you engaged, <laughs> you know, going back and forth like that. I love that. You know, there's so many things that what you just described that are so typically New York that I loved about living there. And one of them is, um, you know, it, it, it's really challenging to find an affordable apartment in New York city. So if you right. get kicked out, if you can find some way to be someone's quote unquote cousin or <laughs> or something like that, you can very find often find your way into a rent controlled right. apartment. And then the other thing is that, um, you know, I would often walk by these old buildings, including the Barbizon. We lived just a few blocks north of it um, while it was being turned into condos. Um, and think about all the different generations of people who lived there over time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's only one generation back, and they've just lived this very colorful life that you can kind of dream of or kind of imagine must have happened. Right. And, um, you know, but now there's a whole new generation living in the building and having their own experience and stuff. So I love that idea of, um, you know, Rose connecting back with Darby Mm -hmm. and those two generations meeting. Cause I think that does happen from time to time. I think it's so cool. I almost wish there were pictures. You know how sometimes in a nonfiction book or a memoir in the middle, there are all these pictures of the person (laughs) writing it. I kind of wish there were pictures of what the apartments looked like then and what they look like now. I mean, it just seems so cool, but it actually, I just, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Go the, ahead. These things also just kind of strike me as kind of like sorority houses for, yes. for young women who graduated university. Like there's rules. Like if a young man wanted to come and visit them, they had to come at certain times of day and right. Couldn't and they go, couldn't stay. Couldn't they stay. Had, right. Yeah. It was all fascinating. Yeah. They weren't even allowed. The men in the fifties weren't even allowed you know, they had to be snuck in if they wanted to go into, a, they were only allowed in like this little ante room, you know, this little like room right. on the first floor where they could be supervised. But, um, That's it was, awesome. it was, it was really cool. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And, there might be some people out there pushing back to say, well, that's not really historical fiction because it does include present day, but it was, it's had that feel yeah. for me. Yeah, totally. The other book that I read, I really loved, and I just found it kind of by accident on mm-hmm. Hoopla, which is Yay. a service of the Mono County Public Library. So thank you for that. You can find it on our um, webpage. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and of course, and it's called The Second Mrs. Astor, and it's by Shanna or Shauna, I don't know how to pronounce her first name, Abe. And this is a brand new book. It just came out in August of of this year. And this is truly historical fiction. And it takes place in the early 1900s on the East Coast. It is the true story of Madeline Force Astor and her, how she came to be the second Mrs. Um, John Jacob Astor, the junior 
or I think he might have been a third. But the Astor family, everybody's kind of familiar with them. They were one of the wealthiest families in the United States, if not the wealthiest family back in the early 1900s. He was 29 years older than she was. Wow. And he was fairly newly divorced, which was very scandalous back then. Sure. And his first wife had taken uh, his their daughter and went to Europe. Okay. And, um, you know, it was, it was a scandal, but of course him being who he was, you know, he was the, you know, the famous guy at the time, you know, that the paparazzi (laughs) followed around (laughs) and, you know, if they had paparazzi back then, um, you know, they all wanted to know, you know, what he was doing and where he was going. And he was in all the newspapers and on the front pages and, he came across Madeline. They have their first meeting when she is 16 years old. Hmm. She, ac- she actually recalls in the book seeing him when she's like eight or nine on the beach. Oh, wow. And they, they have this moment where he looks over at her and she's like, she like says that she fell in love with him then. Awesome. But they, re- they re-meet Bizarre. when um, she is 16 and they start to court. You know, he starts to court her. And one thing I did not know that I learned from this book was that back then, when a man was interested in a woman, he would send flowers to her house every day. Oh, wow. What a gesture. And the different, the flowers all had a meaning. Hmm. So the type of flower that he sent conveyed like how he was feeling towards her at that time. So, of course, he starts sending her flowers. They start seeing each other by, kind of by accident at the very various parties and balls and things like that. And um, eventually they fall in love and they get engaged when she is 17. <laughs> and they, seems young to our ears, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, it was even young then because they talk about in the book how they, they don't, want to get married, have her marry him until she's 18. Okay. And I, I wasn't quite sure, but it seemed like they barely made it there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it got a little convoluted in there about how, if they actually made it because the, because of the press and right. the, you know, what's happening. But after they marry, she is not accepted into society. Like, you know, she imagined she would be. And it's very difficult for her to, you know, she's so in love with him, but the lifestyle now that she lives is very lonely for her. And, it, and she, this is because she doesn't have the right background? Correct. Yeah. I think it's partly because, I think it was partly because of that. I mean, her family was wealthy. Mm-hmm by anybody's estimation, but she wasn't in that Aster level echelon. Right. I mean, he was up there with the Roosevelt's and the, you know, the Rothschilds, Vanderbilt's and all of that. So, you know, he was really up there and And her family was like the next level down. And there's a very um, famous way of describing it. It really was a strict society in New York and Boston. And then back in those days that, Mrs. Astor had a ballroom that his mother had a ballroom right. that fit 400 people. So the family could know 
400 people. And it was like that it was known there was the Astor 400. If you were part of right. that group, you were the top tier. That's right. Yeah. And Madeline's family was not part of that yeah. level. Yeah. And so, you know, all of the guy, all the people that he hung out when he was married to his first wife, they shun them. You know, they don't accept their invitations. They ignore her on the street. They're the women are very cruel to her. Mm-hmm. And, she has one friend that she makes and the one friend suggests is going to Egypt with her own daughter. And she suggests that Madeline and um, Jack go with her Mm -hmm. and they do. And they have, they have this fabulous, amazing trip. And then they board a ship to return home. And that ship is the Titanic. So, Yeah. So, you know, the thing about it is that, you know, this going in, right? Mm -hmm. When you open and start reading the first page, you know, it's not going to end well. (laughs) Right. But yet the way the author has crafted this book. So she starts out each chapter with Madeline talking Mm -hmm. to her son in first person, Mm -hmm. kind of giving a heads up of what's this next part is going to be about. Mm -hmm. And then it flips into third person. And it's, it's just great because you, you know, you hear from Madeline what she was really thinking about whatever was going on in her life. And then you dig in and get the details right from, from the narrator. Is this the son that was born after the Titanic sank? Correct. So she, she was pregnant with him Mm -hmm. while they were on the ship. Yeah. Like almost as soon as they get to Egypt, she figures out that she's pregnant. Yeah. So, so so in a way this is structured as her telling him about his father. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she still is so, you know, she, you know, she's obviously quite elderly when she's doing this narration, but you know, she, she just loved him so much yeah. and they, they were so in love by the way she, it's portrayed. And, um, and the, the, it was fabulous. And so, um, you know, we talked a little bit about how they were kind of a scandal yes. when they met and then the ship sinks and she comes back, she's a widowed mother and she gives birth to the son that John Jacob has never met. And yes, how does the, the tenor change. Yeah. So, you know, of course, when the, the boat that, that rescues the people that survived and, um, he did not, Mm -hmm. but she did. And the baby, um, the, when they arrive, you know, of course the whole, the whole uh, dock is crowded with photographers and Mm -hmm. newspaper men that want to get her story or a quote or picture. Mm -hmm. And, um, Jack Astor's oldest son, Vincent, who never liked Madeline at all and mm-hmm. resented her tremendously. He is there to kind of protect her oh, wow. and he's there with his, pol- you know, with policemen to help him. And so they kind of shuttle her away. But then after she gives birth to the baby a few months later, she she now becomes the darling of the media. Mm-hmm. You know, she is now this sympathetic figure. Right. This poor girl who's barely 20. Right. With, you know, a widow with a baby 
and you know, yeah, she's got a vast fortune, but (laughs) you know, she, she becomes this very sympathetic figure. She becomes kind of like America's darling. Mm. And, um, so the whole society's whole attitude, everything around her changes, but yet for her, it doesn't, it doesn't quell the sorrow. Right. You know, she's, it wouldn't. Yeah. And it so sounds, that's what sounds so timeless to me, right? That intense media judgment scrutiny that can right? flip on a dime and be just yep. as intense on the other side um, is something that I think, <laughs> you know, people can relate to today too. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there are definitely a lot of, a lot of things that are, discussed in this book and explained in this book about that time period that still resonate today. And, um, I just, I just loved it. I'm adding it to my list for sure. It sounds really compelling. And that's what you just hit. One of the things I love about historical fiction is that really well done historical fiction can should resonate in the contemporary times, right? The modern right. time, right? To the reader. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and without making that explicit yeah. connection, right? Yeah. You know, you, you get it automatically. I just, I, it was, it was brilliant, really well done, but you read another brand new book, brand spanking new book. <laughs> I did. That I'm yeah. really interested in because I've been hearing a lot about it. So tell us. About yeah. It. Yeah. And I love how you chose two books this time and I only chose one and you <laughs> <we> flip <laughs> off with that. So that's yeah. awesome. Um, yeah. So I'll just dive into my book pick for this, this week for historical fiction. So again, you know, I'll just restate most of our listeners on this podcast know by now I'm just, I'm a sucker for history and historical fiction. And I think I mentioned at one point, I think we were interviewing supervisor Stacy Corliss that at, we had a shared experience of both having studied linguistics and medieval history in university mm-hmm. at one point, which explains why I'm a librarian and not like a multimillionaire living on a <laughs> remote tropical <laughs> Island. Um, <laughs> But it also explains why I was excited when Lauren Groff, who I think is one of this generation's most amazing writers, her newest novel um, is historical fiction. She's written in like maybe five or six, I can't remember other novels, though one of the more f- uh, famous ones people that people will understand or recognize is Fates and Furies, which was up mm-hmm. for the National Book Award a few years ago. I highly recommend that book. But her newest book just came out this month, and I was excited to get it. I went down to Spellbinders and Bishop and bought it, I think, the week it was out. It's called Matrix, and it really is just an enthralling read. And um, I will say it's one of the few new titles of this fall season that is just cornering the market on positive and rave reviews from every angle. So. And she didn't disappoint. Just just to be clear, this has nothing to do with the Keanu Reeves movies. (laughs) I'm sure Lauren Groff is getting sick of answering that question by now. I mean, I laugh at it because I'm a huge Matrix trilogy fan. Um, (laughs) But I can assure our listeners there is no role in this book that if it were adapted for for TV or film that, that Keanu could... <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 pleased to hear that. I'm very very pleased to hear that. <laughs> now listen, like the um, uh, the second Mrs. Astor, this is a very modern story, but it's set in a historical context, and it's also based on a real person. So 
Lauren Groff chooses as her main character, Marie of France, um, who mm-hmm. actually lived in England back in the 12th century, presumably born in France, because that's how she signed her name. Um, <laughs> she was around in the time of the first Plantagenet kings of England, Henry II and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and their sons, Richard the Lionhearted and Bad King John. These have all been historical characters that have been written about and, you know, movies have been made about them. You know, they're just kind of like, it was that time of chivalry flowering and poetry and music and visual arts. We don't really know much about the real Maria France other than she composed some of this poetry and music. So she was educated. We know that. Mm -hmm. And since she was dedicating it to the King, we know she had some status and it is a possibility that she was his half sister. And there's Mm. some evidence that she may have been charge of a wealthy Abbey in the South of England. One of the few roles that were available to noble women at the time outside of getting married. Right. Mm -hmm. So Groff uses this possibility as her starting point, telling her invented version of Marie's life from 17-year-old, when she's sent by Queen Eleanor to take over this struggling poor Abbey as just a way to get rid of her. (laughs) Uh Eleanor just wants her out of her court. Up until Marie's death in her 70s, by which time she has not only single-handedly created one of the wealthiest abbeys in the country, but she's also kind of just pushed the boundaries of female empowerment in that really strict religious hierarchy, you know, and she does this through a lot of hard work and inventiveness and some subterfuge and a lot of Mm -hmm. mystical visions that she reports seeing. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the modern aspect of the story, this kind of female um, authority empowerment. And because Groff closes Marie off in this Abbey setting in the novel, there are no male characters in this book. That's why Keanu Reeves won't ever be in the movie. There'll be never a movie part for him. (laughs) Um, And to keep her on course, keep her own course going, Marie has to convince and entice the women around her to follow her path without seeming too heretical. She's kind of a Mm -hmm. religious skeptic at the beginning of the book, at least. And she knows she's on a fine line, um, that she's trotting in this hierarchy because it wouldn't take too much to find herself tied to a stake and burned, you know, for doing something wrong in that day. Um, and it's that convincing and enticing of her that moves the story forward and over her life. And, and that's where the title matrix and all its meanings come from. You know, we talked, it's a, it's a movie title, but it's also (laughs) a word that was derived from the Latin word for mother mater. Mm -hmm. Um, and in ancient Rome, a matrix was a mother plant whose seeds were used to expand a crop. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that's kind of the structure of this book. This is what Marie is spending a lifetime crafting, a matrix of relationships at which she is at the center, which then becomes this kind of growing hive of culture in this abbey that is also reflected in stone and the foundation as the abbey becomes richer and she builds more and it grows in size. So at the beginning, she's arrived as a teenager to a place that was rife with poverty and disease and where the residents were dying off. And by the end of her life, at the end of this book, you get a sense that the Abbey that she ran over the decades is now living and breathing on its own, Mm -hmm. which is powerful. And here's what I love about this book mostly. Um, So I've just given you the, you know, there's historical detail that's really well researched here that, you know, Groff really gets right. And then there's the personal story of Maria France, which I kind of just gave a summary of, but then there's a layer in this book that is Groff herself. You know, you might, 
again, think an entire novel set within an abbey is a little confining. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but Groff's language propels this story, often just in exquisitely beautiful prose. So this is a book, you know, especially for me in the latter half, where Maria is a more mature woman, that had me thinking about the author alongside the story. And I think you mentioned this in one of the other mm-hmm. books. Groff's sentence crafting is wonderful. And Matrix as a concept is also reflected in how Groff writes and builds the story itself. And I often thought to myself as I was reading this, how did she come up with this sentence? It's so perfect mm-hmm. for right here. And it and it makes me want to reread the book. Her sentences are often spare and clear, but taken as a whole, they create a very detailed and colorful tapestry. And in fact, I'm going to read just a little bit of it so I, the reader, the listeners can, and you, <laughs> can get uh-huh. a little understanding of what I mean. Because it's hard Great. just to convey that by saying it out loud. So in this little short passage I'm going to read, Marie is in her middle age, and she's entering a room where the nuns are reading. It's, a, you know, they're, uh-huh. they're kind of doing their meditation. And back then, apparently, um, you know, you read out loud. You might read quietly, but you moved your lips and you pronounced the words. And in fact, if you were reading silently to yourself, it was a little suspect. So oh, okay. um, I'm just going to read this. Later that morning, after the meeting, Marie goes into the warming room off the kitchens where her nuns are sitting upon their stools with the books they are meditating over in low murmurings. Among the nuns at the abbey, only Marie practices silent reading, and every time she does, it makes Goda shiver and protest shrilly at her witchy magic. Yet if there is no inner reading, how can there be any inner life, Marie thinks? The light through the windows is watery and angled so that it shines through the breath of the nuns as they read aloud, the rising breath silvering, the streams of word made visible, words transformed to ghost as it rises from these mouths. The noise in the room is a low, sweet hum without pause. The voice is mixing so beautifully that the impression is not a tapestry of individual threads, but a solid sheet like pounded gold. With their heads bent over their books like this, their words palely shining, she understands that the abbey is a beehive, all her good bees working together in humility and devotion. This life is beautiful. So, Love the metaphor. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I, I actually reread that section the first time I read it, and then I went back to read it again just because I loved the painting that she creates and the sound that she creates of this just very simple little scene in the book. And there are others like this. And I think this is the kind of writing that has struck a nerve with so many Mm -hmm. of the reviewers and who are saying great things about this book. So So, go ahead. I have a, I have a question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before how, you know, the kind of the, a subtext of this book, even though it takes place a very long time ago was female empowerment, but yet we all, you also shared that Queen Eleanor kind of cast Maria France out. Mm-hmm. Is there also kind of a little bit of, you know, females being jealous or suspect of each other? Is that why she was cast out? You know, because that's another trope, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it, it totally is. Yeah. And there is a lot of um, interplay and personality that comes through in this book between the different characters, just Mm -hmm. among the nuns themselves as well. But that relationship between Queen Eleanor and um, Maria France is also a central uh, theme throughout the book. And it isn't 
ironically, it isn't jealousy necessarily that gets uh, Eleanor to kick Marie out of her court. Is she doesn't think Marie is beautiful enough. She's not an oh. ornament. But I think she also, you kind of also get this sense without me giving anything away that she also senses Marie is a lot smarter than <laughs> Eleanor. And so she right. also doesn't want to be outshone intellectually, you know. Um, and there is a lot of delicious interplay, mostly through letters. Okay. Um, between the two throughout the course of this book, because actually, you know, Groff has Marie live until she's seventies and the real queen Eleanor lived until she was in her eighties and both very active and both very powerful women, one legitimately so, and one powerful through this um, kind of life that she's created for Mm -hmm. herself in the Abbey. And so definitely there are power dynamics, um, jealousies and some little like nudging each other Uh under the table. It's really, it's one of the more delicious aspects of this book. I love it. It sounds great. Sounds really, really good. Maybe another book award nominee. I would not be surprised if this um, got didn't get nominated. I, I would not be surprised if this got nominated for at least right. the National Book Award or the National Book Critics Circle or it's the Booker List or something like that. It's really, really well done, and I recommend it. It's Matrix by Lauren Groff. And the two titles that you had, Stacey, are the yes, second the, Mrs. Astor. The second Mrs. Astor by Shanna Abe and The Dollhouse by Fiona Davis. And we so will check have, them out. Yeah, we'll have them on our on our website and our Instagram. So yep. add them to your list and tell us what you think. Okay, take a deep breath. We'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight, and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved. Suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast. A colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the conversation portion of our podcast where we bring on a local Eastern Sierra person who contributes uniquely to our live, work, play life here in Mono County and the Eastern Sierra. And this time we are super pleased to have Joe Griego join us. He, Joe, you are the Chief Technology Officer for the Mono County Office of Education. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. <laughs> Welcome, <Thank> Joe. <laughs> and Good morning. F- full disclosure, Joe is a colleague of ours, right, Stace? Yes. So yep. <laughs> um, we're very pleased that he would make the time to visit us today. Um, a, because we know he is very busy, just alongside Doug, um, but also uh, because we know the variety of very interesting stuff that is happening in that area of our organization. So we're very pleased to have you on, Joe. Welcome. Yeah, thank Thanks you, Joe. Yeah. And Joe and I have worked together at the county office. We both came in like at the same within a week of each other. So we yeah, worked, really? worked together a very long time and is it 15 years now? Something like that. 15 Yeah, 16? 15 or 16 years. That's awesome. Um, you guys know where all the skeletons are. He's like are my big brother. <laughs> well you know for working together for 15 years you both still look very young and happy so it must be a great relationship well thanks i have been told i have 
a great face for radio. So <laughs> I've been told that too. So yeah, me um, too. Let's go ahead and kick it off with our normal question. You know, Joe, yeah. we normally ask our guests a little bit about their origin story. So can you tell us um, where you're from and um, how you ended up in Mono County, the Eastern Sierra region, or are you native to it? I am not. I am a California native. I was born in Southern California. My dad was in the Marine Corps, and so mm-hmm. he was stationed at El Toro in Southern California. And uh, I was born near there at uh, Santa Ana. Mm. And uh, I have I had an older sister, and I have a younger sister. My uh, they're all one year. We're all one year apart. So yeah, I have a sister that was a year older, and a sister that's a year younger. And they were both born in Japan. Oh wow. Um, yeah, my mom is Japanese. She's a Japanese national. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we moved a lot uh, because my father was in the military. So we bounced back and forth from California to Japan to Tennessee to North Carolina wow. and then finally back to California eventually. So all over. Yeah. And uh, let's see, how did I end up here? Well, I was going to college in uh, San Francisco at San Francisco State University, and that's where I met my wife working at a uh, insurance company in downtown San Francisco. So that's mm-hmm. where we met, and she was from Ridgecrest or is from Ridgecrest. And she made me promise when we got engaged that we would never live more than a day's drive from her parents, and her parents lived in Ridgecrest. Oh, that's sweet. So, yeah. And so at first we, we moved to Tehachapi, California, okay. um, because, uh, I got a job there working mm-hmm. for a wind energy company. And so I was a programmer and I wrote software for, uh, anemometry analysis. Super exciting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, then that company got bought by a company that you may have heard of. It was called Enron. Um, <laughs> yes. And so it, it got bought up and we became Enron Wind Energy and it quickly became kind of a terrible place to work. I, I did not enjoy that at all. And we had, uh, uh, it became very corporate and very strangely focused on quarterly results. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with the Enron story. I'm sure you know why. Right. And uh, I, I didn't want to work there anymore. So I took a job, the first job I could find actually, that was still within a day's drive of, of Ridgecrest. And that was as a uh, technician at Bishop Elementary. And so, you know, I took a, I, I hated it so much after everyone bought Zond Energy Systems, the wind energy company I work for, that, um, you know, I, I was miserable all the time. Our son had just been born. Mm-hmm. And so my wife, Karen, said, well, you should do something else. And so that's what I did. And and I took that uh, technician position at Bishop Elementary with a significant cut in pay, sure, uh, but a significant increase in happiness. Yes. And so yeah. we moved here, and uh, eventually I became the director of IT down there at Bishop Elementary. And uh, then I was uh, recruited by Stacy's uh, predecessor, mm-hmm. Rich McAteer. And so I moved up here to Mammoth Lakes and have been working here since 2006. That's awesome. So there you go. And that's a, we're so glad you're here. That's a very common refrain, right, Joe, that many of us have taken, have left kind of like the corporate world or corporate environments. You take the pay cut, but it's more than made up for in the environment and just the new lifestyle and just the pace and the friendliness of the communities, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I moved around a lot as a young person and you know, we didn't live any place more than 18 months because those were the deployments back in those days. And, you know, when I met my wife, I was so envious because she had grown up in Ridgecrest her whole life. She, you know, she, she moved there when she was, I don't know, one or two years old and, and had never moved and had people that she knew and that knew her ever since she was a little girl. And, and I never knew what that was like, you know, all through college, you know, I had never lived in one place for very long and I've been here since 1999. So 20, I'm in my 22nd year in Owens Valley and I do enjoy that. I enjoy finding the threads of community mm-hmm. and making them stronger and, and enjoying the strength of those ties. So, so your kids, have I, had I agree. The, your, your kids will have had the experience that your wife did then of growing up in one place. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. My son was born in Bakersfield when we were living in Tashby, but my daughter mm-hmm. is a Bishop native. She was born at Bishop hospital back before they renovated it, you know, <laughs> She grew up here her whole life and now she's off to, you know, both my kids are now off on their own. They're young adults. So, oh, that's great. Was that important to you to, you know, because of the way you grew up moving so much, was it important to you when you had kids to not have, that they not have that experience? I don't know if it was super important because I, my wife and I had very different experiences. And so, um, it does, it doesn't bother me to move. And it, it, it was never intimidating to move and to have to make new friends. It's just something that you get adjusted to when you're a young person. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was, and my wife, you know, is not that person. She hasn't moved a lot. And so I think it's important to have both perspectives when you're raising kids, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can't be afraid to leave the nest. And certainly um, we worked very hard to make sure our kids were not afraid, you know, that they weren't going to grow up provincial and, right. and afraid to move out into the world. Um, and you know, I, I think we succeeded in that hopefully because we had the differing perspectives, I think Stace, to answer that. Yeah, question. definitely. And have you ever, have you taken your kids to Japan and showed them no, where you live? We have not. Um, so my wife has been to Europe many times and I've been to, to Asia, you know, we went back and forth many times and lived there for several years. Um, but my wife and kids have never been to Japan. So one of these days, um, I would love to take them, um, because they've never been right. But of course, when my wife and I took our, we, we had a, a big vacation we took for our 25th uh, wedding anniversary. And what, you know, she, we were trying to decide, should we go, where should we go? And of course, you know, having lived in Japan, I really wanted to go to Europe because I had never been. There. <laughs> and luckily she liked it. So we took a nice trip to, to England and France. Um, but eventually maybe for our 30th, we'll have to go to there you go. Japan. <laughs> I get it. You check off the boxes and like, I've already done there. Where else do I want <laughs> to go? Right. Exactly. exactly. So we touched on your role as the chief technology officer for mm-hmm. Mono County Office of Education and the libraries and First Five. Lots going on there. Um, can you tell our listeners more about what what it's like to be the technology leader of an organization during these times that we live in? <sighs> Loaded well, question. Certainly, yeah, yeah, it's it's certainly other true. than you've got, you know, just you work with me. 
I do. I work with a great boss. Uh, <laughs> and my colleagues are, are beyond compare. We'll settle up later, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't be here for, for 16 years if I didn't enjoy the, the people I work with and the supportive environment that we have. It's, it's like no place, I've, no place else I've ever worked, and I, and I do enjoy it a great deal because we have those three things, right, um, that, that uh, support motivation, and that's autonomy, mastery, and purpose, right? Mm-hmm. I've been given yep. um, enough aut- autonomy to make good decisions, um, and enough resource to master the skills necessary and working in K-12 and working for the public has its own rewarding purpose. It really does. Yeah. You know, there, there's no higher purpose than saying, Hey, we're, we're helping children become adults and move into this world and become productive citizens, uh, productive members of society and make the world better because they are in it. So it's hard nice. to get better motivation than that. Right. Yeah, so, definitely. But, it, but in terms of technology, it's pretty challenging. You know, uh, Owens Valley for, for decades has been kind of behind the curve. And it's been a, an amazing seat to watch and see how technology has changed education, has changed business, has changed society in Owens Valley. Um, there used to only be one fiber optic cable in Owens Valley, and it only went north as far as Bridgeport uh, that was owned by... Verizon and has since been bought by Frontier, but now we have a new fiber bundle that goes all the way from Victorville in the south to Reno in the north and completes a statewide loop of fiber optic cable. Wow. And it's changed, you know, so many things in Owens Valley. I remember working at Bishop Elementary that uh, someone had asked, well, can we get uh, AP classes at Bishop High School and do them remotely? And that was never even possible until we could get enough uh, bandwidth and there was a project way back in the early 2000s called the Digital California Project, where you could, uh, where the state paid to bring high-speed internet to every district in California, and we jumped on board early, and and it's been changing ever since then. Um, but because of that infrastructure work, now we can facilitate remote learning. It's never ideal. You know, kids belong in classrooms. They need to be in front of teachers where they can get instant response. Um, But I was so uh, proud that all of Owens Valley did not have technological hurdles um, when it came to going to remote. It was just a matter of uh, resource. You know, where did we find Mm -hmm. the money? State and federal government helped out with that. But the infrastructure had been built, you know, and and I've worked with my colleagues down in Inyo County for well, for a couple of decades now to make sure that infrastructure got beefed up. I know it's kind of boring to talk about. For, for me, I'm excited about it. I am passionate about it because. Well, it I mean, I think it goes without saying that when we had to shut the schools down and go to remote learning, that our districts were able to do that with such ease um, in great part because of the work of you and your team and everything that has been put in place that they could do that and deploying those resources, you know, you guys made it look easy. So, you, um, it was a lot, and of I know work. it was, it was a lot of work and it was not easy, but of course, you know, I, it, it isn't a credit to me as much as it is a credit to every teacher who had to instantly transition overnight. And of course my IT team, 
who I yep. love dearly because they're, they're amazing, you know, and Doug yep. is part of that team. Your producer yeah. is also part of our IT team and Jeff Such, our director and Bryce Sanderson, our other technician. They're an amazing group of, of people who dedicate their lives to, to making sure that kids can learn and teachers can yep. teach. That's for sure. You know, I will say when I, when I moved back here and I've said this to you before Joe and Stace that, you know, so many rural parts of the country lack broadband, lack that connection that, that many of us in urban and suburban areas have taken for granted, right? Of course we can stream Netflix. Of course we can download that video game or go on Twitch or whatever it is these days. <laughs> um, but here it's much more of a recent thing and we don't take it for granted. And there is still room for improvement or room for to fill in those, those dead spots, right? Cause there are still dead spots around the Eastern Sierra, right? Yeah, there are. Um, the, the fiber optic cable that we have runs, you know, through the, the core of Owens Valley. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the people don't, when I was applying for a grant recently, um, I had to gather some statistics and it turns out that if you combine Inyo and Mono counties, we make up 7% of the landmass of the state of California, wow. but we comprise on less than 0.01% of the population. Right. And our population in Inyo and Mono counties has not changed since the nation was formed. Like since the 1700s, mm-hmm. it has always been less than two people per square mile. And yeah. we're still at 1.8 people per square mile in Inyo and Mono counties. So we have people spread out in very you know, remote locations. So yes, we have, we we do have significant gaps and it's, those are the hard parts to try and fill in. Um, But there, you know, there are new technologies coming along and if we can build out some infrastructure and, you know, Elon Musk is, is working on a low earth satellite uh, network that may solve some of those problems as well as, you know, wireless technology that connects to our backhaul. We have ideas. Yeah. It <laughs> time, time and resource. Like <laughs> it's great that you have ideas. I mean, there are, there are, you know, the, the one that I always bring up is Benton, which is on highway six on the east side of the County, which is a little bit of a dead spot. And like many parts of the country, thanks to your team, Joe, the public library there has free Wi-Fi when the library is open. Um, and that's a resource for people. But of course, Rightly so, you recognize, and I think a lot of us recognize, that that isn't the answer. It's just a step towards the answer where really everyone should be able to access that from wherever they are when we get to some point so that people aren't having to drive to the library and go inside to use Wi-Fi. They can do it from their home even if they don't, um, you know. Yeah, I think ultimately that's the goal because if, if the pandemic has shown me personally anything, it is that the reality for many families in Owens Valley is that they either don't have access to it or can't afford broadband. And it makes a huge difference in our lives today. Mm -hmm. Having ubiquitous internet access affects how you can get a job, how you can apply for a relief if you need it. Um, You know, it cannot connects us in so many ways that, you know, when I was born back in the sixties was unimaginable. Right. I, right. I know I had talked to Stacy before that we are in this, uh, we are in the biggest transformation of human, of human society. You know, mm-hmm. we have moved from uh, a ver- an oral tradition to a written tradition, you know, thousands of years ago when we moved 
from storytellers sharing the sum of human knowledge and having it written down in books. And now we are moving from an analog world where everything is written down in books and on pieces of paper scattered around the world to digital. And you and I, we're living this transition right now. Right. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. happening. The Gutenberg re- revolution is happening, but it's moving from analog to digital. And we're a part of it. I think it's we're exciting. It right now. Yeah, it is. It's, it is exciting. And, you know, when we talk about our kids being digital natives mm-hmm. and we're immigrants. We are. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm still in the covered wagon. Yeah. <laughs> Make no mistake. There, there are those differences in perspective because Stace, you know, you and I didn't grow yep. up in a digital world yep. so much, but our children have grown up entirely in a digital world. And yeah. we, we are managing this transition. Um, and it's, it's an interesting time to be alive. You know, it really is. And it, it is sure. only, it's only accelerating. I mean, my last point on this is, you know, uh, you mentioned the Gutenberg in my last library I worked with. We had a copy of the Gutenberg that people could come and see. And what we like to point out is it was printed centuries ago, but it still operates the same way. It has a cover. You open the cover and you read from right to left and you flip a page, which has a technology that still exists today. But in the digital world, the formats of technology evolve and you have to really keep up with them. Because if you put it on a disc, that disc may not be readable five years from now, you know, so it's and that's an interesting problem, isn't it? Christopher, you and I have had that problem where you were looking for old data, uh, old records mm-hmm. that were in a, in an obsolete format from yep. the, a library in Bridgeport. And we don't have the technology to even read those formats anymore. And we're, we're, we're looking at these challenges today because, you know, that the, the transition from oral tradition to written tradition relied that on the fact that society must have a level of technology. You must be able to create paper, print on it, create ink, right? That's, that's all Mm -hmm. technology. You have to have, uh, you know, an industrial infrastructure in order for books to be printed. Yeah. Well, now we are, we've raised that bar and it requires society to have the digital technology to store and move information around the world. And it, we're not going to go backwards, right? I mean, we, we haven't gone back past books, right? You know, they still exist and we have maintained that technology, that level of technology. And we have to maintain the, le- the next level of technology for the digital revolution. And yeah. it's, again, it's fascinating to me. I like to think about this stuff because I, you know, this is where I live now and we're living through this amazing transformation from analog to digital and yeah. we get to be a part of it. That's awesome. Definitely a cool time. So, Joe, I know you know we were we were talking with Doug before we started recording today, and talking about just how how busy this year seems for all of us. But I hope, and and your department certainly is very, very, very busy. Um, that said, when you do get some time to be away from work, what do you like to do? What do I like to do? What adventures do you like to have? <laughs> well, I love going into the backcountry. I mean, you can't live in Owens Valley and not enjoy what it's like to be outside. So that's one of my favorite things. Um, yeah. I, I like to play guitar, read books, you know. The and basic. you're an avid hiker. I know that. Can I do. Can you talk I about do. some of your favorite trips? 
Yeah, I enjoy going in the backcountry quite a bit. And unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we haven't done a whole, I haven't done a whole ton of that. But right. uh, I, I was able to finally climb Mount Tom after a couple of decades of staring at it right outside. I live on Mustang Mesa. So when I go out my front door, I see it every morning. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Yeah. So what and, was that like? I mean, for our listeners who might not be familiar, Mount Tom is an iconic triangular shaped mountain at the north end of the Owens Valley. Yeah. And it towers over Bishop, right? You can't live in Bishop and not see it. Um, It's about 13,600 and some change. So not quite as tall as Whitney, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's pretty big. Uh, It was a lot harder than I thought, to be quite honest. Um, And I thought, you know, I've climbed Mount Whitney. I climbed Mount, uh, the, uh, the white mountain last year. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, over 14,000 feet high, but it's a trail to the top. It's literally a walk in yeah. the park. Right? You, right. you just walk on this trail that others have created and it's super easy. Mount Tom is not that it was, <laughs> there's no trail. There's no trail. <laughs> no trail. Yeah. You kind of, it's, it's like a class three scramble. You know, mm-hmm. it's not really, you don't need technical equipment to get to the top, but you have to climb on a bunch of rocks that are loose and will mm-hmm. fall on you and smash your toes and, and cut your arms up. And it was, it was difficult. <laughs> so how, how did you decide the route? Ra- I mean, did you go to one of the mountaineering shops and ask their advice or did you, I mean, how did you determine the route you were going to take yeah, given oh, there's yeah. no like marked trail? Yeah. I'm a tech guy. So I, you know, I just went online there's a, and, and watched videos of other people who had done it. So it's, you know, it's a well-known route. It's not particularly difficult um, to find the route. It's just yeah. hard for, you know, my old body to get up that high. So <laughs> how long did it take? How long was that trip? Well, so, uh, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're young and in shape, you can do it in a day, you know, as a day trip, uh-huh. but I am not that guy. So I <laughs> hiked up to Horton Lake um, mm-hmm. which is on the south side of Mount Tom mm-hmm. and spent the night and then on a Friday and then on a Saturday, on Saturday, I went and hiked all the way up to the top and back down again and then spent the night again and then came back home on Sunday. Nice. So it took me three days, but Beautiful. Um, I think young people can do it in one. So what was it? Oh, go ahead, oh, go ahead Christopher. Well, I, I'm just curious because yeah, as I mentioned to you, I've stared at Mount Tom my entire life too, wondering what it looked like at the top. So what was that feeling like when you actually reached the top and looked back down on this valley you've lived in for two decades? Um, relief and a little disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> relief that I made it uh, because it was, it was a, like I said, a lot harder than I thought. I, I was actually a little bit shamed into it because when I, uh, posted on Facebook that I was going to try and climb it, I immediately got a message from a former pastor of mine who was an interim mm-hmm. pastor and he's in his eighties now. And he said, uh-huh. Oh, well I did that back when I was 70. <laughs> I'm 57. You know, and I thought, oh, I'm old. My knees hurt. And my former pastor, you know, Oh yeah, I did. I did that when I was 70. You'll, you'll be fine. <laughs> And of course, when I got up there, I looked up and, you know, that last several hundred feet, mm-hmm. I was not fine. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. very, very difficult. You know, yeah. you, you go up and it's all this loose scree and you have to find mm-hmm. rocks that are solid enough to pull yourself up on. And mm-hmm. it was difficult. And mm-hmm. then when I got to the top, the disappointing part was that the smoke had filled the valley. Oh. In the oh. On Friday, it was great. 
you know, the, the uh-huh. smoke was just kind of trickling in. I thought, yeah. oh, I'm going to be able to see my house from the top. I brought my really nice camera and a tripod, and I was mm-hmm. all set to take photographs. And then when I got to the top, I was literally socked in with smoke. The smoke had uh. all the way to that 13,000-foot level. So oh. I did oh, not have a clear view of Bones Valley. I couldn't hardly see the valley floor at all. In fact, I could not. Um, it was but if you looked west, I could see the rest of the Sierra, and it was gorgeous. Yeah. But Owens Valley was completely socked in. And unfortunately, you know, it's it's a difficult hike. I don't think I'm going yeah. back there anytime. So yeah. that's, <laughs> that was, that's Well, that was uh, my next question. Was, well, are you going to do it again? And <laughs> Yeah, if somebody builds a tram to the top, I'll take the tram. <laughs> well, do you so when you you know look out your window now, or you leave for work, or whatever, you leave the house in the morning. Do you look at that mountain differently now? Yeah, I think so. Um, y- y- the Sierra Nevada are so beautiful, and there's so many places to go. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I always think, you know, has anyone else been up on? up there, you know, Mm -hmm. what what did they see? What did it look like when they were there? And you think about, you know, the natives that have lived in this Valley for, for thousands of years. And Mm -hmm. you wonder, is there any place they haven't been? And you think about that. I I like to think about it and wonder, would I be the first person to, to see that rock or those trees or that flower? Yeah, no, I do too. I think it's fascinating. And also, um, just riffing on that. One of the thoughts I often have going around our area is, we see it this way today and what would they have seen 500 years ago? I mean, but for a few telephone poles and some power poles, it might've looked just the same, which is fascinating to me. It is to me. I I was a little boy. I used to wonder if I could set up a time-lapse camera that would last for tens of thousands of years and Mm -hmm. make a movie, what would that look like? Because Everything looks the same from the time, you know, I was mm-hmm. born until the day I die. Mount Tom will look virtually the same. Yeah. But it isn't, right? It came from nothing. It came up from the valley floor. And you look across Owens Valley and there's this wave of granite that looks like it might crash into Owens Valley. And it's an incredible natural phenomenon, but it came from somewhere. It you did. Know, it, it wasn't there always. <laughs> and what would that look like in a time lapse to see it rise, you know, an inch at a time? an inch over a thousand years, you know, I think that's a great, Anyways, it's a great concept. I, and I, lo- <laughs> I love that description of wave of granite because I often look at yeah. Mount Tom and basin and Wheeler Ridge together as kind of like this. It is so stunning. And so, um, it just captures the imagination when you're, cause you're driving towards it. If you're heading North, it's right, right. in front of you. And to me, it's right up there with, you know, the wall and Game of Thrones or something. Like, it's some, so massively <laughs> big. It just dominates everything, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we could talk about that all day, but, right. <laughs> Joe, we do like to ask our, our guests, um, you know, what they've been reading or what, what's, on your, what's on your side table. So do you have a, a book you'd like to share with or two or whatever? Sure. Uh, well, the, the last book I read was a, a really nice, fun summer read. It was, um, it's a book by an author named Andy Weir mm-hmm. and he wrote a book called the Martian. They made a movie out of it with uh, Matt Damon. I think he was in it. Oh, yes. Um, and it was a really fun story. And this one is, uh, you know, also science fiction or, or, you know, uh, future history kind of thing where an astronaut wakes up on a spaceship and he's not quite sure why he's there. Mm-hmm. And he has, 
he has amnesia and he's trying to figure out, well, what happened and why am I the only one? He's the only one left alive on the spaceship and he sees two other people that had passed away and he, and they were his crewmates and he's trying to figure out why, well, right, what were they up to? What am I, what, why am I here? And over the course of this novel, he figures out what the mission is and he decides he has to finish it because humanity depends on it. So it, it was a quick read, you know, I finished it relatively quickly because it's like a movie. What was the title again? Oh, I'm sorry. The book is called uh, Project Hail Mary. Oh, that's and his newest uh, one. Yeah, that's his yeah. newest one. So um, I heard about that. It got really good reviews. It's it's a fun, you know, it's, yeah. it's like a, a summer film. It was really fun to read. It's about first contact with aliens. It's about saving <laughs> the world. And it, there's a lot of hard science. And that's my prefer- preference. I like hard science fiction. Yeah, nice. I, I think that's what why he resonates so well with a lot of a lot of readers, and that's certainly one of the reasons The Martian was so popular, right? Um, but yeah, Project Hail Mary. I'm just looking it up now. Came out this spring, so this is a, a great new recommendation for yep. for people. Yeah. That's I wasn't awesome. sure when it came out, but I saw it this summer at uh, Spellbinder Books and Bishop, so I I figured I would pick it up. Nice and awesome. uh, supporting your local bookseller, which is also pretty cool. <laughs> I'm just looking at it right now. It's it's been optioned for Ryan Gosling. Oh, <laughs> is that good it casting? Like it would make a good film. So okay. <laughs> I enjoyed the Martian movie. I haven't read the book. Me too. Um, I I like we we like that movie, and all of us in our family like it's a good family movie that everybody can enjoy and yeah i, I really certainly did in too. our house it's very reminiscent of apollo 13 right of it where mm-hmm. it isn't miracles or space aliens that save mm-hmm. the day or superpowers it's you know it's it's humans figuring mm-hmm. things out and making it better which yeah I like. very cool which is awesome that's great well we will we'll put a link to that in our show notes as well and joe thank you so much for joining us taking time out yeah. of your very busy day to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Thanks. Yes. Keep, keep climbing and posting pictures. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> we more scrapes and cuts. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No yeah, be careful. <laughs> well, thank you listeners so much for joining us for this episode of the oxygen star podcast. We really appreciate your time and you're, you're listening to our show. Um, as always, you can find us on our, um, you can email us at oxygenstarved, uh, at podcast at gmail.com. We have our Facebook page and our Instagram page, O2Starved. So please check that out and join us next time for another episode. And we will see you soon. Take good care. Take care, everyone. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.